Hey, everybody. It is Monday, September 18th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm still here. It's <laughs> If you're here, that means the baby has not arrived just yet. <laughs> not quite yet. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, how was your weekend? It was great. Lots of family stuff, lots of food. Yes, the Jews brought in the year 5784 this weekend. And my daughter's activities officially started. So she had her first soccer lessons or soccer practice and and other stuff. So weekends are filling up. We're still a few years away from that over in this household. We're just, uh, (laughs) we're waiting for our little one to show up whenever she chooses. So I didn't hear from you all weekend. So I kept thinking, no news is probably no baby yet. (laughs) But if I didn't hear from him, it could mean maybe the baby did come uh, and you guys were busy and at the hospital. It's funny, actually, the the certain people on Instagram, like if I don't post for a few hours, they're like (laughs) something up. I'm like, you people. <laughs> I'm just taking I my feel. weekend. <laughs> I'm just taking my weekend. Though, incidentally, if you're interested, we've begun our series over on the Mo News Premium account, uh, our deep dives into the candidates. And uh, our first candidate this weekend was Vivek Ramaswamy. So, everything you ever want to know, and maybe some things you didn't want to know about Vivek Ramaswamy, he is candidate number one in our candidate deep dives over on the Mo News Premium Insta account. You can join over at slash premium. Everything we'd ever want to know, most just give us one surprising snippet. What's one thing that you were really shocked about? So my favorite uh, thing I discovered is when he was at Harvard as an undergrad, he had an alter ego, an alter rap ego, and he would rap under the name Dovek. Uh, and apparently the Harvard Crimson, the newspaper on campus, covered it, saying that he rapped with, quote, libertarian prose with the utmost of ease. I guess this kind of explains why he rapped Lose Yourself at an Iowa State Fair a few weeks ago. Yeah, he apparently told his college newspaper that it was his life's theme song, Lose Yourself. So not surprising that all these years later, he's singing his theme song. Okay, that nugget and many more over on the Mo News Premium account. But let's get to some headlines. The auto worker strike is on day four, where things stand with negotiations. Did America just hit the lithium jackpot? And what could it mean for our economy? The UN General Assembly starts today, but some notable leaders are missing. Mosh, what else do they have to do besides going to the General Assembly? <laughs> they there... meet once a year. <laughs> they meet once a year, but a number of leaders just too busy to make it this year. Though at the same time, local New York officials tell us that traffic will be worse than ever. So try to put those two together. In a remarkable turn of events, the Texas Attorney General was acquitted on charges of corruption and bribery. Actor Russell Brand accused of raping and sexually assaulting four women. Drew Barrymore reversing course and says that she will re-pause her show. And Apple's new operating system out today. We're going to talk about some of the new features. Most, let's just say, screening voicemails just got a whole lot easier. That is, if anyone still leaves voicemails. Yes, I was just going to say, Jill, uh, <laughs> I, I should tell you, I will never screen your voicemails. I pick up whenever I can pick up people. And Moshe has on the same history. So we spent a lot of time on 90s uh, nostalgia here. Today we throw it back to the 60s. The 60s? Interesting. Yeah, so we'll have a couple fun events there. And we'll tell you about the uh, only president that we know of that uh, reported a UFO sighting officially and the backstory there. 
All right, let's get going. We're going on day four of the auto workers strike. And over the weekend, negotiators for the union said that they had, quote, reasonably productive discussions on a new contract with Ford and planned to talk to General Motors as well. But the president of the UAW, which represents the striking workers, rejected a public offer by Stellantis, which is the parent company of Jeep, to boost pay 21% over four years, which means the historic coordinated strike against the big three automakers continues. The union head, Sean Fain, said the 21% offer and other terms from Stellantis just not sufficient. Fain said, we asked for 40% pay increases. And the reason we asked for 40% pay increases is because in the last four years alone, the CEO pay went up 40%. As of now, only about 13,000 UAW workers or 8% of the union's 150,000 workers are on strike. It is part of a coordinated strike targeting just three U.S. assembly plants, one at each of the Detroit three automakers, again, Ford, GM, and Stellantis, which is the parent of Chrysler. Yeah, we'll get into more details in a second here on which of those three plants they chose. But in the meantime, as far as their pay argument here, it's been central to the United Auto Workers argument that if Detroit's three automaker CEOs get pay raises by 40%, workers should get the same. The UAW president, Fain, has repeatedly cited the figure, contrasting it with the 6% pay raises that auto workers have received since 2019. He initially opened with, we want 40% as well. They've now lowered their demand to 36%. But let's get into this for a second. Did the big three auto chiefs actually get 40% pay increases? Well, not exactly. Executive pay is notoriously complicated to calculate because so much of it comes from stock grants, stock options. So a detailed look at the compensation packages at all three companies shows that the UAW's claim here both overstates and understates the reality to a certain extent. So the pay here for GM's Mary Barra, for example, the CEO of GM, is mainly in stock grants. She's actually the only one of the three CEOs who's had the role since 2019, where this 40% number is based on. And her comp package last year was just under $29 million. The single biggest component was $15 million in stock grants, which vests over three years and depends on the company's performance. So what she's been saying is, I haven't been getting a 40% increase. It's just that the company has increased value. Therefore, my stock value has gone up. So her stock over the course of the past few years has gone up 34%. So it's not apples to apples here. But at the same time, just for comparison's sake, Mary Barra is making $29 million. The CEO of Ford, uh, about $21 million. Again, when you add everything all together, compare that to the median worker salary. At GM, it's $80,000. At Ford, it's $74,000. At Stellantis, it's about €64,000. For perspective, the pay ratio, CEO to median worker, about 300 to 1. Now, that is beyond the typical pay gap you have at most companies. So while they might be overstating the salary thing, the uh, pay ratio, uh, they might be understating. The average pay gap in most S&P 500 companies is 186 to 1, whereas at these car companies, it's 300 to 1. And by the way, just to give you some historical perspective, going back to the 1960s, the CEO to worker pay ratio back then was 15 to 1. And now it's 10x that, almost 20x that. So pretty significant. And that is one of the reasons these workers, not just the auto companies, but also across the board, UPS and the other places you've seen strikes or strike threats this summer, um, are saying, you know, we deserve our fair share 
of these company profits. Beyond the money, by the way, they also want equal benefits for temporary workers. Uh, and so this is why, for the first time in history, the UAW has symbolically here gone on strike against all three companies. Moshe, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's really good perspective, just about the 40%. Right now, that strike, it's affecting only a handful of plants, three in three states. So you've got GM's assembly plant in Missouri, where they make cars like the Chevy Colorado pickup and the GMC Canyon. There's Ford's assembly and paint plant in Wayne, Michigan, where they make the Ford Bronco and Ford Ranger pickup. And then the Stellantis plant in Toledo, Ohio, where they make the Jeep Wrangler and the Jeep Gladiator pickup. But Fain saying that the union was prepared to, quote, do whatever we have to do, which means that they could really expand the strike beyond those three plants. So I've been reading a bunch of, of newspapers to try to figure out where things stand, as I know you have. Um, the consensus here seems to be, at least according to USA Today, that automakers know that they're going to need to really boost pay to cover the cost of living adjustment and then some, but that the union likely knows that they're going to have to accept that they're not going to get this 32-hour work week for 40 hours of pay, which is also something that they have been asking for. But I will say when I was a reporter in Lansing, Michigan, back in 2007 and 2008, I did cover an auto strike. GM workers had gone on strike. And it is a huge hardship for these workers. It's not a decision that is made lightly. They basically mm. survive on $500 a week in strike pay. And that right, comes the union has from a fund. the union. Yes. And that all comes from this union's budget which is not unlimited. Uh, so again, this is not something that that they take lightly. But it does appear here that they've made some progress here, these counter offers of up to 20% pay increases. So unclear how long this lasts and whether they feel the need to escalate this beyond those three plans to more workers and more plans. All right, now to a story getting a lot of attention over on our Mo News Instagram account this weekend, an ancient dormant super volcano could have the potential to propel the United States to become the next leader in lithium production, which is an essential component in the fight for green energy. Scientists think that they may have discovered the world's largest lithium deposit in the McDermott Caldera. It is a large volcanic crater that's located along the Nevada-Oregon border. Volcanologists and geologists think that the lithium could be trapped in thick clay underneath the volcano's crater. The caldera was formed when a now extinct volcano erupted about 16 million years ago. During the explosion, the hot liquid magma that spewed through the cracks in the ground created lithium inside the volcanic rock. Jill, every time I hear the word magma, I just think of Dr. Evil. Magma. Magma. <laughs> If the magnitude of this discovery is accurate, and if the lithium is easy to extract, which are both big ifs, then a volcanic eruption that happened eons ago will have helped shape the future of green energy and technology. So Mosh, now to why this really matters, it's because this metal, it's a rare metal and a key ingredient in building the rechargeable batteries that power smartphones and electric vehicles. The timing is ideal as electric vehicle demand is expected to soar in the coming years. So if we want to rev up EV production here at home, this discovery could make that possible. Scientists believe that the McDermott caldera contains around 20 to 40 million metric tons of lithium, 
which is more than double the lithium deposit found beneath a Bolivian salt flat currently home to the world's largest lithium reserve. And for context, the amount of lithium produced last year was about 130,000 metric tons total across the entire globe. The caldera is believed to hold eight times that amount. So this could be huge, as they say. Huge, huge uh, for EV production once that strike is resolved, of course. Uh, But actually, it's going to take a few years for them to really start mining this. They believe 2026. Uh, For perspective here on why this matters, the U.S., while we're now number one in the world in natural gas and oil, sort of the current situation, lithium is sort of for the next world, America, when it comes to lithium, ranks in the top five when it comes to lithium reserves, but only makes up 1% of lithium production worldwide. Therefore, as of right now, even as we try to rev up EVs, the U.S. is nearly completely reliant on other countries for lithium, making us vulnerable to supply chain disruptions, prices, and and a whole bunch of other stuff. So this would give us a key source of lithium, uh, and it could help with our demands and global demands for decades. Right now, we only have one active lithium mine here in the U.S., And this does come as China has been super aggressive in spending billions to buy up lithium from mines around the globe. Uh, U.S. has not been as competitive, but it turns out we don't have to look very far. It might just be in the desert there in Nevada and Oregon. Now, as I noted, it might be a few years uh, before this lithium comes out of the ground and is produced. And by the way, just like oil, uh, lithium has its own production refining process. And so we do have to build that infrastructure beyond taking it out of the ground and also determine whether this type of lithium, lithium can come from a variety of types of sources, is going to be easy to be processed and produced uh, in various facilities. So uh, again, the comparison here to oil, where like if you extract oil from fracking or you take it from oil sands or you take it from deep sea, there's a whole variety of things you have to put that oil through to make it usable for, you know, jet fuel or uh, gas for your car. The same thing when it comes to lithium. So Mosh, in my head, I'm picturing like those illustrations of somebody just striking oil, you know, like the oil well, and then the oil sprouts up. Mm-hmm. I imagine this was, you know, more anticlimactic, but I wonder <laughs> what they thought when they just landed upon <laughs> potentially yeah. the biggest lithium stockpile in the world. I, I mean, yeah, I'm sure it was like much less Hollywood ask, right? Like scanning the ground, sending it for analysis, <laughs> having AI and computers analyze the deep ground, etc. Um, what is interesting here, Jill, is for a while we've known that this area can produce lithium. They just didn't know how much until this most recent analysis. Uh, and keep in mind, this area is controversial. Native Americans in the area view it as an ancient burial ground and say this is similar to digging up Arlington National Cemetery uh, for energy needs. They've actually been fighting it in court for a couple of years now. A judge most recently in the spring ruled in favor of the uh, lithium production companies saying they can move ahead here. Uh, The Native Americans can't prove exactly where these people died or where this battle was. But this is, you know, disputed land, uh, just so people are aware. Uh, At the same time, it appears uh, the courts have ruled in favor of production here. And then, of course, there's questions as to the environment. You know, I found this quote interesting uh, from one of the tribal activists who says that when it comes to green energy, as we talk about the new energy economy, uh, he said he told NPR the following, quote, we can't flush out all of the water from out of here rip up all the grass and the sagebrush, flip it around, drill into it, and call it green energy. So, you know, there's an argument that some make that uh, from 
this is ranchers, this is uh, tribes in the area, etc., that you could contaminate billions of gallons of groundwater here in the West, which is already uh, drying up, leave uh, a lot of waste behind, pose a danger to wildlife habitats as you pursue lithium for this new energy economy. So this is a reality that I think we'll all have to confront is no clean energy is totally clean. And that's an argument that some of the critics here are making. All right, Jill, we have a lot more to get to, including today's speed read. But first, let's get to one of our new Mo News partners, Shopify. They have a new deal for all of you listening today, whether you're a business owner or whether you produce something as a hobby and you're looking to potentially sell it. If you haven't heard of Shopify, you may have heard this sound before. Now, that's the sound of another sale being made using Shopify. If you're a business owner like me, you're always looking for a solution to get your products out to everyone. Shopify is the e-commerce platform that is revolutionizing millions of businesses around the world. We will be launching Mo News merch this fall, and we'll be using Shopify as our hub. Whether you're an entrepreneur making your way on Facebook Marketplace or totally IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your business. It has a great checkout that helps you convert browsers into buyers. Right now, they have a special deal for the Mo News community. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period over at shopify.com slash monews, all lowercase. Go to shopify, S-H-O-P-I-F-Y.com slash monews to take your business to the next level today. And we're also always talking about health trends and food trends and how hard it is to get all of your nutrients. Well, one way to try to get all of the important ones is Athletic Greens AG1 powder. I've been drinking AG1 in the mornings for quite a while now. It's just one scoop with a glass of water. It is quick and easy and lets you get on with your day, knowing that you've gotten over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. It also has pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. So visit drinkag1.com slash monews to take advantage of this offer. You can get a discounted monthly subscription or try it one time for just a month. Again, that is drinkag1.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S, and that's all in caps for this special deal and really start to take ownership of your health. Time now for the speed read from Reuters, the UN General Assembly, the largest yearly gathering of world's leaders and high-ranking diplomats, kicks off in New York City this week amid numerous international crises. And as the UN comes under increased scrutiny, President Biden will be the only leader of one of the five UN Security Council permanent member countries to show up this year. The leaders of the UK, France, China, and Russia are all skipping the General Assembly. Mosh, what is happening? Well, real quickly, Putin's not coming here because he doesn't want to be arrested. Xi and uh, China typically ignoring this. The surprise absences really are the French and the Brits. Macron says he's too busy. He has King Charles visiting soon. And over in the UK, the belief is that Rishi Sunak, the new prime minister there, uh, is really just immersed in domestic issues. That said, it really speaks to even how much more irrelevant the UN has become. I feel like it's almost embarrassing that, <laughs> that Biden is going. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> the, I mean, he has nothing better to do. Everyone else is too busy. I think he wants to reinforce <laughs> how uh, important he feels it is, especially coming after the years of Trump, where Trump pulled the U.S. out of the World Health Organization, was going to pull funds from the U.N. So we're still sort of making good on a couple of years of trashing the organization. Diplomats representing Latin America, Africa, and Asia have been increasingly vocal about their frustration regarding the amount of attention given to Ukraine when compared to other global crises. And case in point, Ukraine's president, Zelensky, is expected to appear in person to address the General Assembly on Tuesday, and then he'll appear before the Security Council the following day. And uh, he is also expected to head to D.C. to meet with lawmakers. Yeah, he's seeing the signs of the U.S. is uh, more and more reluctant, at least parts of uh, the political establishment, more and more reluctant to give more money to Ukraine. And he wants to reinforce the need to continue to support Ukraine 19 months into the war. Uh, back to the U.N., Jill, by the way, Biden's not going to be spending too much time at the U.N. He's going to give a speech. It's probably going to last less than an hour. He's bop around New York and then head out. And there's still like 100 something leaders that are here uh, and uh, will you know, dive into any of those major bilateral meetings that uh, make some news this week. But you know, as I mentioned before, the UN, which was once the central forum for solving geopolitical disputes, is increasingly on the sidelines these days of new global politics. It's really unable to keep up with a whole bunch of shocks, crises, coups that are fracturing the world, uh, even stuff in the past year, Jill, where the UN would have really been involved, like uh, the crisis in Haiti that's escalating or the coup in Niger. The UN's been pretty impotent when it comes to that stuff. And most countries are starting to look beyond it. The Indias, the Brazils, etc. for years have been saying, you know, when you formed this in 1945, yes, we understand the victors of World War II formed this, but it's been almost 80 years and there's new kids on the block here, countries that have become independent since the UN was formed and we deserve a seat at the table, a seat, a permanent seat in the Security Council. But reform has been so challenging. Keep in mind these permanent five members, right? U.S., U.K., France, Russia, China were decided in 1945 for the rest of time. And now you have one of those countries, Russia, that just invaded Ukraine. You have another in China that's threatening war against Taiwan. And you can't do anything about it because they have veto power on the Security Council. So they've sort of put themselves in a box here. So that's led India, Brazil, others to, you know, go uh, be more serious about groups called BRICS, you know, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, BRICS. Uh, there's also a group called the Quad. Uh, that's the US, Australia, India, Japan. They've been meeting lately. We tell you all the time about the G7, about the G20, about NATO. And that's really where all the business, the real business is being done these days, going back a couple decades now, is the UN has sort of taken a back seat. By the way, Jill, we also have a deep dive on the UN over on the Mo News Premium Instagram account. If you're interested in how this came to be, we go into that history. Though some people do point a finger at the US, it was just 20 years ago that the Bush administration went to the UN Security Council uh, asking for a vote for permission to invade Iraq, to begin the war in Iraq, and they didn't get approval from the UN. Well, what happened? The US did it anyway. So a bunch of people are like, well, US, you've proven that the UN was useless. In fact, you conducted a whole war that we told you not to conduct. You did it anyway. So like, this thing isn't really relevant, right? From the Texas Tribune, after a historic 10-day trial, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton acquitted Saturday by the Texas State Senate on 16 charges of bribery, unfitness for office, and abuse of office. He was immediately reinstated, ending a suspension that began in May with his impeachment by the State House. 
Most of the 16 charges resulted in the same 14 to 16 margin, with only two Republicans siding with the dozen Democrats. 21 votes were required for conviction. Paxton was impeached by a majority of his own Republican Party in the state house. And this vote by Senate Republicans not to convict exposes this major rift within the party. In accusing Paxton of abusing his office, his own former advisors recounted how Texas's top lawyer allegedly pressured them to help a political donor who was under FBI investigation. The testimony included arguments over who paid for home renovations, whether Paxton used burner phones, and how his alleged extramarital affair became a strain on the office. Paxton denied wrongdoing, and his attorneys argued there was either no evidence or wasn't enough to rise beyond a reasonable doubt. They portrayed Paxton as the victim of a plot orchestrated by Republican rivals. Jill, you mentioned that the extramarital affair was part of this, uh, making things even more complex. Paxton's wife, Angela Paxton, is in the state Senate. She was a senator. Uh, Now, she was not allowed to vote, given conflict of interest. But then after her husband was acquitted, she walked over to her husband's uh, legal team and hugged each of them and thanked each of them. So fascinating details here to this case. But to your point about the split within the Republican Party, this really put the Trump wing of the party and the non-Trump wing um, into new exposure here in Texas, though even some Trump supporters in the state house voted to impeach Paxton, saying, no, Paxton's totally corrupt. Now, Trump uh, stood behind Paxton, and you saw the entire conservative media sphere really put a lot of pressure on the state Senate uh, to not uh, convict him. In fact, the two Republicans who voted with the Democrats, they're already saying, you know, the MAGA wing is saying they're going to uh, run primary candidates, far right candidates against them when they're up for re-election as revenge for uh, voting to convict Paxton. Paxton, of course, came to the defense of Trump many times. Uh, he filed a lot of lawsuits from Texas, many that weren't effective, but nonetheless, he, uh, you know, helped him fight the 2020 cases. He helped him fight on a number of other fronts. Now, Paxton is clear from this. He's back as attorney general uh, in Texas. You know, he was smiling, glad handing as the vote came in on Saturday. But this is not the end of his troubles. He still now faces federal trial on felony securities fraud charges. He remains under a separate FBI investigation at this time. And he's in jeopardy of losing his ability to practice law in Texas because of his 2020 election overturn attempt. So not over for Paxton here, but a fascinating case. And Jill, we heard from a lot of um, Texans who are watching this very closely, including some Texas Republicans who are conservative through and through, they tell me, but they felt like Paxton needed to go here uh, and were disappointed in the result over the weekend. From the Times of London, actor Russell Brand was accused of raping, sexually assaulting, and abusing four women over the course of seven years. According to this bombshell report, one woman was a 16-year-old that he allegedly called the child. The allegations against the British entertainer emerged in an investigation by the Times of London and Channel 4. The actor denying the allegations. Four women have alleged sexual assaults between 2006 and 2013, While he was a presenter for BBC Radio 2 and Channel 4 and then an actor in Hollywood films, he's also been accused of being controlling, abusive, and having predatory behavior. The Times said that over the past few years, reporters have interviewed hundreds of sources who knew or worked with Brand, 
ex-girlfriends and their friends and family, comedians and other celebrities. People have worked with him on radio and TV and senior staff at the BBC Channel 4 and other media organizations. The media organization saying reporters have also seen private emails and text messages, submitted freedom of information requests, viewed medical and therapists' notes, scrutinized Brand's books and interviews, and watched and listened to hundreds of hours of his shows to corroborate allegations. So some of these allegations between 06 and 13 also fall during the time period when Brand was married to singer Katy Perry between 2010 and 2012. Among the most serious allegations involves a woman who, at the time of her three-month relationship with the then 31-year-old Russell Brand, uh, she was only 16, as you mentioned. According to the woman, Brand was emotionally and sexually abusive during their time together. She goes into some extreme, terrible details um, in the reports in the Times and Channel 4 about the types of behaviors uh, and assault he was committing. She also claimed that Brand, who referred to her as the child, asked her at one point to read passages from the book Lolita. Another woman came forward with an accusation that Brand raped her in her L.A. home in 2012, while a third woman said she was sexually assaulted by Brand, who then threatened her with legal action if she ever went public. Jill, some really concerning allegations here. At the same time, you saw Brand defenders, including Elon Musk over the weekend, say timing is suspicious here because Russell Brand has been calling out he's a, he's a big anti-vaxxer. Uh, and has been particularly vocal on certain issues. So they feel, quote, the man, the establishment is trying to get at Russell Brand here. So and we certainly heard from a few people as well. But, you know, as we've seen in recent years, whether it's the Bill Cosby allegations or the Harvey Weinstein allegations or a whole number of these cases that we've followed, coming forth with allegations about celebrity is very challenging and sometimes doesn't happen immediately, but we will be monitoring this story. Someone also noted uh, on our account this weekend, Jill, this has been a tough summer for the Forgetting Sarah Marshall cast. Of course, Russell Brand. Mila Kunis apologizing recently for the letter she and Ashton wrote trying to get Danny Masterson, his rape sentence reduced. And then, of course, earlier this summer, Jonah Hill uh, had his ex-girlfriend making accusations against him. So everyone's saying, please save Jason Siegel and Kristen Bell. I was actually thinking... Paul Rudd, please. Nothing happens oh, Paul to Paul Rudd. Rudd okay? <laughs> nothing should happen to Paul Rudd either. I mean, it's a pretty good cast when you start to put that together. But yeah, it's a, it's been a tough year for a few of them. From the Wall Street Journal, television host Drew Barrymore, who faced backlash for taping new episodes of her daytime show amid a months-long writer's strike, said Sunday that she would pause the show's premiere. The show was set to return to the air today. Barrymore said that she would now wait until the industry's labor issues with the Writers Guild of America are resolved. She wrote on Instagram, I have no words to express my deepest apologies to anyone I have hurt. And of course, to our incredible team who works on the show and has made it what it is today. We really tried to find our way forward. And I truly hope for a resolution for the entire industry very soon. Yeah, Drew got a lot of heat online when uh, she tried to make the decision to move forward here. And, you know, it does show how much power, how much influence these actors and writers have had. Uh, CBS also announced over the weekend they'll be pausing the season premiere of the show The Talk. Another daytime talk show, Jennifer Hudson Show, also delayed its season premiere. At the same time, you have shows like The View, Live with Kelly and Mark, uh, and a whole bunch of other shows 
which aren't entirely governed by WGA rules. They might employ a couple WGA writers, but they're moving forward regardless. But you have seen picketing outside ABC, outside CBS uh, studios in New York uh, with a push for solidarity here. They really want the entire industry, uh, whether you're in the Actors Guild or not, to partake here in order to get pressure um, on the studios to resolve this in a way that the writers and actors are happy. At the same time, there are shows not backing down. Bill Maher, notably, late last week, we noted it in the newsletter, uh, saying that he's moving forward because, yes, he you know feels for the writers, he feels for all of them, and he admitted his show is not going to be as funny, but at the same time, he has a whole bunch of other workers on the show that cannot afford to sit out during this time. So he's weighing you know, the non-Guild members with the Guild members, trying to show some sort of solidarity, but also saying you know, a lot of other people are suffering here and I got to keep them employed. And you know, you're probably not surprised, given Bill Maher's just general contrarian nature, that he's willing to challenge um, this group. Some tech news from CNET. Apple releasing its latest operating system, iOS 17, today, giving users new features like live voicemail, standby mode, and a new journal app. The full release version of iPad OS 17 will also launch today, adding new ways for iPad users to interact with widgets and personalize their lock screen. Following its full release, iOS 17 users will be able to create customizable stickers, set up contact posters, and benefit from various improvements to autocorrect and voice transcription. So we are told, Mosh, no more ducking. Ducking. No, <laughs> ducking. This should be, if you update your phone and it autocorrects what you're actually writing to ducking, call Apple. Let them know. That's not supposed to be the case anymore. You could also activate Siri without having to say, hey, first. And the new live voicemail feature will display a live transcript on your screen as a voicemail is being recorded if you don't answer your phone. Meaning screening calls, I guess, just got really advanced. Jill, it reminds me of the 90s when you listened to the answering service in your house for who was calling if you didn't have caller ID. Or even if you had caller ID, I mean, I'm going old school here. And you're like, oh, I wonder if this is a good note or a bad note. And you'd wait a few seconds of their message to find out what they were saying. So CNET here says that they particularly like the new standby mode that turns your iPhone into a little bedside clock when placed on its side. So you just get a little stand for it, but you literally turn your phone on its horizontal side. So it becomes a, a nice visual alarm clock, you know, beyond the alarm clock that we've already been using the phone for for years. Name drop. This is not new to Android users, but it will be to us iOS users, will allow you to share contact information over AirDrop by bringing two iPhones together. Now, Apple has warned in fine print uh, in its press release that some of these features might not be available in all countries or regions. So bear that in mind if you said, well, I heard it on the podcast. And one other thing here, and this is always our frustration with Apple, apparently iOS 17 is only compatible with certain chips in certain phones, meaning the oldest phones that will be able to uh, get this update for iOS 17 are the XR and XS phones. So if you have an iPhone 9 or below, we got nothing for you. You will be stuck saying, hey, Siri, can you handle and it? And <laughs> you will be ducking. You will be ducking left and right. All right, now time for On This Day in History. We're going to begin in 1793, 230 years ago today. President George Washington laid the cornerstone of the U.S. Capitol building. Now, the building would take nearly 100 years to complete. Uh, architects came and went. You might remember in the War of 1812, the British 
set fire to it, almost burned down the entire thing in 1814. Though a rainstorm saved the building from total destruction, it was hauled into use uh, during the Civil War for Union soldiers. So it took a while for that thing to go up, including the dome. One other notable thing, and you would learn this in a U.S. Capitol tour, the government relied heavily on enslaved labor to ensure the capital city got built and to ensure the capital got built. And if you look at the top of the Capitol dome, there's a statue called Freedom. Ironically, it was cast by a slave at the time. So a lot of history in that building that reflects the history of this country. We're going to fast forward to the 20th century here. On this day in 1947, the U.S. Air Force officially became an independent separate military branch. For about four decades before then, it was initially created uh, and grew as part of the U.S. Army. And then after World War II, they're like, we got to make the Air Force its own thing. All right. Now for the story we told you about at the top. On this day in 1973, a future president named Jimmy Carter filed a report with the International UFO Bureau that he saw a UFO back in 69. So this was September 18th, 1973. Jimmy Carter of Georgia says, I definitely saw a UFO. Three years later, he would be running for president as the Democratic challenger against Jerry Ford. Uh, and he was pretty forthcoming about his belief, his genuine belief that he saw a UFO. And during the 76 campaign, Jill, let me know if this sounds familiar. He promised the government would release every single piece of information about UFOs and make it available to the public. Then Carter becomes president in 76 into 77, and he backs away from the pledge, saying the release of all this UFO information could have defense implications and pose a threat to our national security. So I've been thinking throughout this whole podcast, which president <laughs> may have seen a UFO. <laughs> uh -huh. I was actually thinking maybe Trump. That is a more than legitimate guess, Jill. And what's interesting is we have seen in the past couple of years, starting during Trump and now during Biden, this, you know, we talked about on the podcast last week. We've talked about the podcast a lot. This sort of like opening up when it comes to UFO information. Though at the same time, you know, I've said this before, when it comes to many things, but like with Trump's view of classified information, I do feel like he would have told us about <laughs> the aliens if, in fact, we had like found some at Roswell. Don't you think? That feels like a very Trump thing to do. <laughs> All right. On this day in 2020, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away after two decades on the court. She passed away at the age of 87. Of course, late in that campaign cycle, Trump would nominate Amy Coney Barrett to be the next justice at the Supreme Court. Mitch McConnell, Republicans in the Senate rushed that through, and the conservative, Barrett, would become the justice to replace Ginsburg on the court. All right, so we often do pop culture and music history from the 90s, but Jill, today we're going to throw it back to the 1960s for a couple of our final On This Days. You recognize that. That's the Adams Family theme song. The TV show premiered 59 years ago today on ABC on this day in 1964. And it's back. I feel like there have been remakes and now there's a whole new show on Netflix. And movies and, and new versions of it. I mean, The Addams Family, iconic. And as we're only a few weeks from Halloween, Jill, I'm sure you're going to see a lot of, uh, you know, Wednesday Addams out there this year. All right, another iconic show from the 60s got its premiere on this day. Just a year later, actually, September 18th, 1965. <laughs> I Dream of Jeannie premiered starring Barbara Eden and Larry Hagman. Jill, another show that uh, has gotten remade a few times. 
And 55 years ago today. Don't bring around a cloud to rain on my parade. Jill, don't tell me how to live. Just sit and putter. Life's candy and the sun's a ball of butter. <laughs> I don't even know who you are with today's on this day in history. I'm like, I think it proves that we are too stuck in the 90s. It's nice to do a little, a, a different decade. This, of course, is Funny Girl, starring Barbara Streisand and Omar Sharif. It premiered in theaters 55 years ago today on September 18th, 1968. Jill, but that's back on Broadway. So, Jill, I feel like I'm trying to pick stuff that, yes, it comes from the 60s. And yes, we have some listeners who remember it in the OG sense. But these are all shows and songs and music and stuff that, you know, continues to stand the test of time. Yes, because we are officially out of new ideas. nothing is original anymore we're done nothing's original anymore (laughs) jill had a chance last year to see beanie feldstein in that barbara streisand role and finally we go to the 1970s here jill but boston the band released their song more than a feeling on this day in 1976 all right we want to thank you for listening to the mo news podcast if you like what you hear please share this with your friends it will help us grow follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the app store jill i promise i'll bring it back to the 1990s tomorrow for you you know what mosh i can hang in the 60s i dig it (laughs) i agree with you in terms of the fact that what's old is new again and it is fascinating to see some of the origins of broadway shows and and shows on netflix that we're seeing and and where they really date back to the 60s when there was some original thought in hollywood and in music correct all right everyone we'll see you for an original mo news podcast (laughs) tomorrow bye everyone thanks for listening to the mo news podcast